Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We are recording today from various locations around Winnipeg, all within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and Dakota, as well as the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis homeland. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Saturday Night Ghost Club by Craig Davidson. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, though I'm currently found at the Henderson Library because the Idea Mill is full of ghosts. Across the screen from me is... Hi, my name's Kirsten, and uh, you can find me at the Harvey Smith Library. And I am nostalgic for my one-piece turquoise tracksuit with the matching headband. And across the screen from me is... Hi, I'm Trevor. I'm the branch head at the Louis Rail Library, and I'm recording my audio on a 90-minute Maxell cassette today. So at the 45-minute mark, Dennis, you'll have to let me know I need to flip the cassette so that we can get, uh, get the entire recording. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary And you, dear readers, we couldn't do this without you. You don't need a spirit phone to contact us, just a smartphone or computer. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. If you hang around until the end of the episode, you can enjoy our special segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. In a minute, Trevor is going to summarize this month's book. But first, Kirsten will give us a bio of the author. Craig Davidson raised in St. Catharines near Niagara Falls or Cataract City. Davidson has a PhD in creative writing and says that he's written everything you can think of. Stories, novels, long-form nonfiction pieces, memoirish stuff, advertorials for things like wristwatches, forever, and nice. water bottles and juicers for a variety of publications. He's written classified ads, ad copy, and fake profiles for a dating site. <laughs> but also to make rent money, he still has had to take on a variety of other work as well. In a library, as an ESL teacher in Japan, special needs bus driver, a pharmaceutical test subject, and a newspaper and magazine editor uh, for magazines like Muscle Mag. And a number of his short stories and stories in general are about boxing and fighting. He is trained as a boxer. One of his first books was written in 2005, Rust and Bone, a collection of short stories. And two of the stories, unrelated, were actually merged together and adapted into a Golden Globe nominated film by French director Jacques Audiard in 2012. In 2007, he wrote a novel called The Fighter, and for research, he went on a 16-week illegally obtained steroid cycle. And like I said, he's trained as a boxer, and in a 2006 interview, he was asked if you could fight a celebrity, who would you fight? And he said, I think I'd take a crack at Dr. Phil if I ever got a chance. I'd love to get on stage and bust him in the chops. <laughs> I don't know if that was the, that was the steroids talking or, or <laughs> Davidson. Um, to publicize the book, The Fighter, he also participated in a sanctioned boxing match against Toronto poet 
Michael Knox, and later against American author Jonathan Ames. He lost both fights, and you can see photos of the fights on his website. I'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes. On the other end of the spectrum of storytelling and narratives, in 2016, he wrote a memoir called Precious Cargo, which is about the year that he spent in Calgary driving a bus for children with special needs and what he learned from them and all the lessons that they taught him. Precious Cargo was a finalist for Canada Reads 2018. He has also written horror novels and short stories under the pseudonym Nick Cutter. Nick is actually his son's name, but also under another pseudonym, Patrick Lestuka. He has said there is no writer in his life who has been more meaningful as Stephen King. And he describes King as one of the best writers on childhood. Would I invite him over for dinner? Um, I don't know. The whole comment about, you know, busting uh, uh, Dr. Phil in the chop scares me a little bit. But I don't know. Maybe I'd... I'd um, Invite him over for a friendly arm wrestle, maybe? That could be. Anyway, that's Craig Davidson. It sounds like he lost both of those fights. So, you know, you could probably I, take him, Kirsten. Right, right. And it's been years now since he was on the steroids. He's quite right, a bit older right. now. So, you know, and yeah. I've just grown and stronger. <laughs> and if he lost to a poet, then losing to a librarian would just, you know, kind of fill out the resume <laughs> that's there. right. <laughs> Craig Davidson, if you're if you're listening to this, <laughs> the invitation's open. <laughs> and and uh, Craig Davidson, if you are listening to this, uh, I am still a bit scared of you. So uh, this is all just all just in fun. Uh, I'm sure you're a swell fellow. Um, yeah, I do have a summary of the Saturday Night Ghost Club that I will share with everyone right now. The summary, just like uh, Jake's story, is mostly in my head because the notes I had for it were on my iPad, which I'm now using <laughs> to record. But I will say this. The novel begins with this quotation. What follows is an account, as I choose to remember it, of my 12th year on this planet, the summer of the Saturday Night Ghost Club. So that was written by the narrator of the story, Jake. He's an adult telling the story, looking back on this one magical summer that he spent in his hometown of Niagara Falls, Ontario. The adult Jake is a neurosurgeon. And so the book periodically goes back to talking about his adult life and uh, details about neurosurgery and how the brain works and the, the nature and the uh, fluidity of memory. But the, the bulk of the story is told, uh, as he chooses to remember it, about a summer that he spent with his uncle Cal and new friends that he made, Billy Yellowbird, and later on his uh, Billy's older sister, Dove Yellowbird, who had just moved to Niagara Falls from the Yukon. And a guy called Lex, who was Uncle Cal's friend who ran the Betamax video rental store very close to the, the, the occultorium, which is what Uncle Cal owned and operated. Uh, if anyone's ever been to Niagara Falls, at least in the 80s, it was filled with a bunch of cheesy tourist trap kind of places, uh, like a Ripley's Believe It or Not. I haven't been there for years, uh, so I could de definitely imagine this place. And in the summer... Uh, this one particular summer, Cal, who is very much into the uh, the unknown, the mysterious, the urban legends, he believes, uh, to quote uh, uh, Agent Mulder from X-Files. And so over the summer, uh, Cal spearheads the uh, Saturday Night Ghost Club, where he and Billy and sometimes Dove and Lex 
all and Jake go and investigate different supposedly notorious haunted spots around Niagara Falls. And it also is a time for uh, Jake to look back on that summer and what it meant then and what it means to him now. And as the story progresses, uh, we learn bit by bit a little bit more about Uncle Cal's story. And his story becomes the focal point towards the end and why his motivations and Cal's backstory fill out the novel uh, as at the climax. So that's how I choose to remember the novel. Uh, <laughs> that's all I have to say about the Saturday Night Ghost Club by Craig Davison. Well, I hope that's not all that you have to say about the Saturday no, Night No, no, that's all I have, have to say about the summer. We have an hour now to chat. Oh, yeah, of course. So. Yes, of course. Yes, yes. I think Slave Lake is in um, northern Alberta, actually. Uh, I apologize yeah. to the good people of Slave Lake. I said the I Yukon so. because, again, yeah. memory is a funny thing, Kirsten. Yes, I guess so. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I stand corrected. So what are our first impressions of the novel? Well, I'm going to say last month when we were before we started recording our last recording, Kirsten, you were up you know, futzing around. I think maybe you were printing something. So uh, Dennis and I were just chit-chatting and I was saying to Dennis, I hadn't even started the novel yet, but I already loved it just from the cover alone. I don't know if you guys had the same cover that I got, but it's one that's got like an old uh, house with a little white bicycle in front of it with like uh, flames kind of coming out of the house. And then it looks like it's a, it's intentionally a distressed cover. The corners are kind of made to look like it's ripped and, and it looks like the type of book that I would totally read when I was 12 years old. So my first impression, I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but we all do was <laughs> super, I was super, into it before I even cracked the cover. You know, I just actually realized that it's meant to look distressed because I saw <laughs> a bunch of these come over my counter and I'm like, these are in terrible shape. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> You've already withdrawn oh them all. My God. And oh, sorry, there are no more sale. copies left. <laughs> Don't be PL. Just yeah. kidding. <laughs> no, it kind of looks like something you'd pick up at a garage sale, you know, yeah. in a yeah. box with a bunch of yeah. other books. Yeah. 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 Which is nice because that's how I got some of my first books back in the 80s. <laughs> when I, you know, totally. they all had that smell that I associated with these awesome books, which turns out to be mold. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the smell, the smell of these old books. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you end up feeling nostalgic for the smell of old books, even yes. though, yeah, that wasn't a good thing. That would be a really yeah. cool marketing thing. You know how in the 50s they had like smell-o-vision when you'd go into a movie and, you know, uh, they would like uh, squirt, I guess, vapors at you to match the movie? <laughs> if, if, they, if like Craig Davidson's uh, publisher, you know, actually had the books scented with mold <laughs> or basement, oh, uh, you know, and then it would just totally uh, complete the effect. Yeah. Would yeah. not be a selling point for me. <laughs> One uh, of the questions that we had asked, yeah. like uh, about the book on social media, was that it's a nostalgic journey. Like it's set in the eighties, and it really does seem to be very focused on nostalgia. Like for myself, I'm reading all these things that you know, talking about video stores and uh, all these different movies uh, that they mentioned and things like that. Just harken back to my childhood. Million Dollar uh, Man. <laughs> yeah. The Philadelphia Experiment when uh, Billy was telling uh, Jake about it. And it's like, I watched that movie on TV. You know, it's, <laughs> It was a fun movie. It was really good. And we have it on Hoopla, by the way. Yeah. How did you guys find the nostalgia aspect of the book? Because we all seem to be in the right age range to have memories like this. I really liked it. I mean, I wish I had a Uncle Cal 
you know, he just seemed like this amazingly sort of childlike and yet wise adult. The whole scene right at the beginning um, where he talks to Jake about the monster under the bed and um, mm-hmm. was just so beautiful. In my little uh, blog post that I wrote at um, when we were just talking about this book uh, last month, I, I said, you know, I was totally the kid that had the Ouija board and saw ghosts. And I mean, I wanted to sort of seek out, but I was also incredibly terrified by seeking out these types of experiences. So, which is why I wish I had a, a Uncle Calvin to have to have gone along with. But um, yeah, the whole nostalgia thing is very, very interesting, especially right now during the pandemic. I mean, there's been so much written about it. So I think this whole idea of like, uh, you know, being nostalgic for the before times, you know, the bef- mm-hmm. b- before the pandemic, but also just before we were adults, before we, you know, had all of these responsibilities and worries and concerns. Um, and so, you know, there's all these folks who are sort of like going back to books and movies that really comforted them. They, they comfort them now because they hearken back to this time uh, when they were a real comfort to them. And I mean, even like reaching out to old friends or yeah, connecting with folks that maybe in the actual before times you didn't connect with, but but now you're connecting with them again, um, you know, having games nights and all of these things that just sort of, I don't know, they they harken back to this sort of easier time. It was not an easier time, but, you know, we have this sort of weird nostalgia about it. I know on social media, Carrie 664 said nostalgia is a path that leads to happy memories in your heart. Which, you know, I think a lot of people were sort of have been looking at some of these things um, in that way, hearkening back to like the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, I agree, Kirsten, with everything you said. I was just going to add, too, that uh, nostalgia can also it's sort of a double edged sword in the sense that people, us humans, can be manipulated with nostalgia, yeah. too. And I mean, make America great again. Yeah. is all about nostalgia and and this idea that there was this one time this golden time that we need to return to and we we've seen what what that's done to the United States over the last few years uh, but it's because we hearken back to uh, this time that we 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 remember in a different way and i was looking at uh, how old craig davidson was he, i'm just a couple years older than him so all of his touchstones in the 80s were my touchstones. In fact, at one point, Jake is reading a stack of G.I. Joe comics. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that that was my go-to in the 80s. And for the longest time, I never really got into superhero comics because even though G.I. Joe comics, it was Marvel, it was sort of a self-contained universe. And the only other comic I would read, Marvel comics, was the Transformers uh, because, of course, I collected the G.I. Joe and Transformer toys, and I didn't realize at the time that the comics were just these marketing vehicles, right? They introduce a character in the comic, and then next month, oh, the character you can buy. And so I would read, <laughs> I, I would play with G.I. Joes, I would play with Transformers, I would read their two comics, and then when there ever there were crossover events, it was always... G.I. Joe and the Transformers. So even the crossover events were self-contained. So it wasn't until I was almost past the age when kids got into comics when I started to get into like what you would consider the main Marvel characters, Spider-Man, the Avengers and such. So yeah, it, just the little moments in the book like that, I just felt, felt very genuine and took me back instantly in a comforting, cozy way. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because I think nostalgia is good. I mean, you know, nostalgia is good for whom, you know, what audience finds some of these 80s movies or, you know, a comfort. And I thought that's why it was interesting that Craig Davidson also introduced the characters of Billy and Dove Yellowbird. Because, I mean, certainly their life was not easy. And, you know, Jake came from a family with amazing parents and this great Uncle Cal who, you know, had tragic trauma in his life. But, you know, to sort of introduce these characters of Billy and and Dove who had to, they moved from Slave Lake and... uh, You know, Billy really missed his Setsune, uh, the grandmother, who was just so unhappy to have moved away from her community. And Dove, the idea that she shrank living in Cataract City or uh, Niagara Falls because she wasn't allowed to be who she really was. They they just expected her to be so much less, I think is how it was. So I I thought that was also interesting, too, because, yeah, the 80s will make America great again. Yeah, for whom? For whom was it great? Well, and and as long as we're talking about the way nostalgia is kind of rose-colored glasses, like one of the things about it is that Jake wasn't aware of the backstory that uh, the Yellowbirds had because, you know, the reason the dad wasn't in the picture is because he wasn't a very good person. Their mother had suffered at the hands of, was it a grandfather? A physical assault and still had that limp, but that wasn't something Jake was aware of at the time. And just like when I was a kid, you know, you had classmates that uh, maybe you didn't like for a different reason. Someone was a bully, and it's only years later you find out that they suffered abuse in their home. But as a kid, you're not aware of that stuff. So when you look back on the time, it was a good time because you're oblivious to a lot of what's going on around you. The 80s were a difficult time politically for the world with the threat of nuclear Armageddon and stuff like that. But for a kid, for the most part, that was not something – it was a subject of movies, you know. So it was kind of an adventure, but yeah. And he did a good job showing that because he, you know, flashing into his current life as a neurosurgeon, he's talking about these different things from his past with the insight that comes with time, whereas the characters aren't experiencing that. They're experiencing the adventure of the moment, which is, uh, I think, what we all wish we could have. We could have the adventure of the moment without realizing the gravity of everything else around us. Yeah. The characters were really strong, too. Like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. Billy and Dove. Dove, And uh, they were both very strong characters, especially Dove and the portrayal of her as someone who was, uh, I don't think they specified, but as something like ADHD or bipolar. or uh, She had difficulty with the humdrum. She had a lot of energy and uh, creativity and uh, forcefulness to her, which is challenging and for, uh, you know, being in a quiet school situation in a quiet town, for example. Well, and and being Billy and, and Dove were indigenous, so no doubt living in Cataract City, there were probably very few um, other indigenous kids in their school or, you know, so not fitting in that way as well or sticking out. And and lots of these things were sort of left unsaid. But I mean, I think as adults, like reading this story, you know, even about talking about sort of the abuse that the mother had and, you know, you sort of think back to, oh, um, I mean, there there's a bigger cycle and bigger picture of abuse as well within the Indigenous residential school system, etc. So, but that wasn't brought into it because, I mean, Jake wouldn't know anything ab- yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. A big thing that came out throughout the story was the insecurity of children as it comes to friendships. Mm, 
Because, mm-hmm. like, from the beginning, like, the way Jake met Dove the first time was because she intervened when uh, one of Jake's bullies, who had been his friend at one point, had assaulted him with a firecracker yeah. to the face. Yeah, like, horrendous. Which is a really serious oh thing. But also, like, you know, Jake's experience with friends was he befriended someone and then they abandoned him. And then he and he even lost access to the places he had shown his friends because now they went there and uh, he was driven out of it. And so when he was reaching out to Billy or, you know, when they were getting closer, that was a constant fear of his that at some point school would start. Billy would become friends with other people and he'd be on the outs again. Mm-hmm. I know when I was a kid that age finding friends was extremely difficult uh you know if you're a shy kid yeah and i thought it really was conveyed well throughout the novel yeah and holy cow the bullying that Mm -hmm. uh jake endured i mean the whole bb gun incident too like oh my goodness that was such a dramatic scene oh yeah and I, i mean and then when i started reading a little bit more about Craig Davidson. I mean, like the whole sort of the violence then, you know, the the fighting within all of the generations. I just, it was um, it, not my experience as a kid even. So uh, that just seemed very, well, it was, I, it's, it, the book was very well written because it really did um, place you right there and uh, was very sort of visceral in its mm. descriptions. The other thing I thought that uh, Craig Davidson did well is that you know, when I read the idea that's a, you know, a coming of age story, uh, poignant, yeah, my first thought cynically was like, okay, which one of the kids is going to die? You know, oh. which one's going <laughs> to get the cancer or, you know, and, and um, but he kind of, he kind of sets things up and I wouldn't say turns the tables, but doesn't go down the conventional route all the time. I kind of like the fact that at the end, all the main characters are, are okay, like, mm-hmm. you know, Dove's moved to San Francisco and she's there and it seems like, well, that seems San Francisco, from what I've learned from Tales of the City, seems like the perfect place for someone like Dove to find herself. And, and Billy, you know, he's gone back, to, you know, to Slave Lake and works in outreach and, you know, he played football and he stayed true, a true friend throughout yeah. it all. Cause you're right. Mm-hmm. As I, I, my stomach was nuts for that friendship too, because I was like, oh, when's he gonna, when's he gonna abandon him? And, and it was complicated that summer, but they went on and they were college roommates and, and, they, and, and in fact, one of the last things Jake says is, oh, I just miss that guy. Because yeah. just like with strong childhood friendships, you do drift apart as adults often. And uh, it doesn't mean that you uh, have had a great falling out or anything. It's just sometimes life takes you in different ways. Yeah, so I I, I found there were unexpected and, and the, the whole thing about Dove getting that bus ticket and leaving oh, town. Oh, yeah. O- o- <laughs> only just, you know, it seemed like a huge thing to a 12-year-old. And yeah. and, and, and then eventually the mom collected her and brought her back and he, he understood her. And it, w- it didn't turn out to be this huge thing that at the time felt like this was going to be the last time we ever see her, hear from her, what's going to mm-hmm. happen. and Or at least yeah. that's how it was described by Jake our right. unreliable narrator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Um, I was yeah. reading about it and they did refer to Jake as a unreliable narrator, but 
I felt that was a little unfair to Jake because right from the beginning, he says, this is how I choose to remember it. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I always feel like unreliable narrators, narrators, narrators <laughs> are <laughs> like, remember that when we read, I'm thinking of ending things where like partway through, like, you're just like, what? Yeah. Uh, I never felt that with this. I felt like Jake was telling us a story, but never once did he sort of pretend that everything that here was exactly as his 12 year old self remembered. And I'm thinking of the scene when Uncle Cal orchestrates the break-in at the funeral home oh. so that so, so that Billy can have one final moment with his, his grandma. And at the, at there's that one moment at the very end when Uncle Cal, well, uh, Jake notices the funeral director standing in the corner and then Cal just nods, just slightly nods his head. And so at that point, of course, the adult, Jake couldn't understand it as a kid, but of course, an adult, he knows, well, this was all orchestrated. This was yeah. all, you know, <laughs> yeah. he has a connection, you know, and which I was actually relieved about because until mm-hmm. that happened, I'm like, this is extremely irresponsible. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, this should, you know, uh, Uncle Cal, I like him, but, you know, he should probably be arrested for this uh, until mm-hmm. as an adult, you, you, you read it, you're like, oh, 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 okay. It's like the, getting rid of the ghost thing in the in the closet it's cal doing His something process yeah yeah yes exactly so um yeah i'm not sure where i was going with all that but there it is well the unreliable yeah. narrator i mean oh I, it's right when yes. i use that word i don't actually think of it as being something that they're doing on purpose you know or mm. with malicious intent at least right. that, that's not how i but i mean yeah, yeah. we're all we're all unreliable narrators like i'm it's a very true. unreliable narrator of my own life i have to say <laughs> well I, I think that was part of the point too when he talked about memory because working as a neurologist you know the narrator would be hypersensitive about these ideas about accuracy of memory this was another thing i really liked about the book because neurology and the way the brain works is something i'd been very interested in for a long time and i've read lots of books on it and as a result been more circumspect about describing anything i say with certainty Mm. Uh, i'm not certain about anything because (laughs) i have read enough to know the limits of my brain and what i do remember and what i can actually say with gusto and you know like this is absolutely true it's like i don't my wife gets frustrated with this because I don't state things in certain terms and she likes certain terms. So, you know, I won't even say that there's a hundred percent chance that the sun will rise tomorrow because it might not. It's a very remote chance, but that's kind of the space I'm in mentally, right? right. I, you know, nothing is absolute. <laughs> right. I kind of put more weight into the story he told because he acknowledges his limitations right. as a human being with a human memory. I thought that was lovely. Yeah, there's a there's a point I'd written this down on page 35 about uh, 235. Sorry. Memory is more the melting and refreezing of a glacier than it is like an inscription on a rock. I thought that was that was a a good way to describe it. And really, I found I think he's a great writer. Like, I really loved some of his descriptions of things. And he's quite funny. The characters are so lovely and fleshed out and you really feel like you're getting to know them. Like, I mean, the father, Jake's father, when he calls him, oh, go up to bed, you you strange, beautiful organism. I'm just like, (laughs) when do we like it? I I just love the parents. They were just so great because the the mom too talking about, you know, after they were all in the fights and then the mom of the other boy was sort of like saying like, you know, what about this? What are you going to do about this? He broke my son's nose. And she said something like, 
frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, was sort of like the sense, honestly, yeah. my dear, I find myself struggling to care. Actually, I wrote yeah. that down. <laughs> yeah. I, I find myself struggling to care. Yeah. These parents were great. Jake had yeah. wonderful parents. Yeah. Yeah. And in true 80s fashion, you know, they didn't know where their kid was yeah. half the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It made me think of a memory, unreliable memory of we had this gang of kids that we would hang out with in our the little sort of town that I grew up. And we would go to the dump and find things. And um, like we we found this like big sort of rusted out motorcycle and we brought it back and we were, yeah, I mean, that's my memory of it anyway. Like there were so many cool things that we found, I remember. And uh, yeah, bringing this old rusty motorcycle back was a highlight for sure, for sure <laughs> trying to get it to work. <laughs> Yeah, we were, you were talking about the like his writing style, mm -hmm. and one thing I noticed throughout, he used a lot of violent imagery mm -hmm. in his descriptors. Like there were, you know, something looked like a knife. Uh, something came down like a guillotine. Yeah. Uh, oak trees rose above the golf course like broken fingers. It was Ooh, all yeah. always these things. So, you know, one of the questions we had asked on social media was about how Craig Davidson has written horror novels under a pseudonym as Nick Cutter. And had you been surprised when you discovered an author writing under a different name. One thing I thought when, you know, I saw, oh, he wrote horror novels, it's like, well, that makes sense. This yeah. type of imagery, he just inserts yeah. into the book and it really creates an atmosphere. So I imagine his horror novels are also pretty well written this way with that type of imagery. Well, I have to say a couple of years ago, I read a Nick Cutter horror novel without uh, any idea that it was a pseudonym for somebody. I, I The only reason I read it was on the recommendation of none other than Stephen King, who mm -hmm. uh, on his Twitter feed often will just say, oh, just read this, check it out. And that was one of the books and he said it was Canadian. And there's this one called The Troop about a group oh. of Boy Scouts that are on in this two-day uh, wilderness camping thing with their scout leader on this tiny little island uh, off the coast of PEI. And of course, they are menaced by a uh, maniac who uh, shows up at the island. And uh, it's, it, it's a straight ahead, unapologetic horror novel. It's really well written and visceral. And I had no idea that when I read this, until I, you know, I found out that it, it, reading this one very recently, that that book I read that I loved was actually written by the same person. And he did, I, I did feel like the style felt different. Like this story felt like, again, everything that we're talking about. Yeah. It was almost like he, when he wrote as Nick Cutter, it was sort of like he was unrestrained from trying to account for anything that he may have to account for, you know, that <laughs> like, it was almost like his id was uh, writing the story. And whereas this, I feel like there's maybe a lot more circumspection that happened, uh, maybe his own thoughts about uh, memory. Uh, I, I shouldn't say, cause I don't know his writing process, but I enjoyed it. And so that was an interesting question about writers and their pen names. I, I did a bit of a deep dive on famous writers and their pen names or famous pen names and their <laughs> writers. And when I looked it up on Wikipedia, it was 38 pages long. Uh, so, so what I did was I, I narrowed it down by just authors I heard of. And it was eight pages. So don't worry, I'm not going to read out all of them, but a couple of them of note. Did you know that Anne Rice uh, is not her real name? But you'll never guess what her first name is, her birth name. I'll just tell you, it's Howard, because she was named after her father. So her name is Howard <laughs> Allen Francis O'Brien. And she took the name Anne Rice. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Another name, which I, I never, I don't know this author. Maybe you guys know. His name is Al Trace. 
which to me sounds like a pseudonym, but he wrote as Clem Watts and also at Bob Hart, which both don't <laughs> sound like a pseudonym. So I just included that one because I thought that was interesting. Of course, I mean, Dr. Seuss, yeah, yeah. he's been in the news recently for all the mm-hmm. wrong reasons. And mm-hmm. uh, Theodore <laughs> Seuss Geisel was his name, not even yeah. a doctor. So we should have known something was up with him. <laughs> George Orwell, not really his name. Eric Arthur Blair. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. This one I don't think really is a pseudonym. Helen Taggart Clark, she has published as HTC. Oh, that's just her initials. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Come on, Helen, try harder. <laughs> uh, oh, and another, another problematic children's classic, Hergé, writer of the Tintin uh-huh. series. Obviously, it's not his real name. It's who has a one-person name. Only Madonna, Sharon, <laughs> Oprah, right? Uh, Georges Remy. I don't know. It's got, I, I mean, I could go on. I should. Oh, here's one that I was very surprised of. John Le Carre, a famous oh. a spy novelist, not his real name. Hmm. He was David John Moore Cornwell. Hmm. So just like a spy. Hmm. Yes. I, I I was looking at some lists, too, and I saw um, that Dave Pilkey, you know, the children's author, has mm-hmm. written a whole series of dumb bunny books under the name Sue Denham. Yep. Sudenum. Uh, Sudenum? Sudenum? Ah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and of course, of course, uh, Lemony Snicket, who wrote the oh, yeah. uh, series of unfortunate events, his name is Daniel Handler. But right. often Daniel Handler, when he appears at uh, author's events, will say, I'm sorry, Lemony Snicket couldn't be here tonight, but I'm his agent and I'll be fielding questions. Uh, so even now he still kind of keeps keeps it up. Yeah, like I, re- I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that um, I, I read a few interviews with uh, Craig Davidson where he sort of kind of went back and forth between, you know, himself as Nick Cutter and even on his website, too. Like you can enter as yeah Nick Cutter or Greg, Greg Davidson. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, it's, I know, I know. Probably, uh, yeah. It's about, almost time for me to turn my cassette tape. But uh, I had a couple <laughs> more. Uh, did you know that Mitt Romney? has a, a pen name a pen uh, name <laughs> yeah the, the twitter he, the twitter one <laughs> yeah yeah he 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 was on twitter under a, a made-up name so he could monitor twitter without being known uh, Mitt oh. Romney. and you know what his twitter name was i love it pierre delecto what <laughs> yeah and people were like what does that mean and he's like oh I, I don't know my son helped me set up the account and i just uh <laughs> Uh, they, my son asked me what name I should uh, use, and uh, that just came into my head. So, <laughs> yeah, Pierre Delecto. And of course, since we're talking about Nick Cutter as a horror writer, Stephen King mm-hmm. published a series of books under the name Richard Bachman. Yeah. Which yeah. Uh, was found out eventually because people noticed similarities in the writing style. But yeah. 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 Dean Coots, too, oh, like has, oh. has had like multiple pen names, like, oh, like a yeah. dozen or something. Yeah. My list is sorted by real name, not pen name. Otherwise, I'd read out the Dean Coots names. But yeah, yeah, there was about six or seven or more yeah, on this yeah, list and probably yeah. more. Um, mm-hmm. The interesting thing about Stephen King that I read, I don't know if this is true or not, but Back in the 70s and early 80s, when he was getting his start, it was generally considered that a serious writer wouldn't be able to publish more than one book a year, that anything more than that wouldn't. And so he started the Richard Bachman name because he could publish more books and because he was so prolific. And also he he also kind of once he became famous, he wanted to sort of see if 
lightning could strike twice and would people hmm. if they didn't know it was him would his books be as popular and it turned out that the Richard Bachman books weren't nearly as popular when they were Richard Bachman then of course when it, when he was outed uh, and they were rebranded as uh, Stephen King in big letters writing as Richard Bachman then of course they they had a resurgence and and did hmm. better the second time around too I guess James um, Patterson didn't get that memo about, you know, you can't be popular well, if you <laughs> if you publish well, more well, than Stephen, one a year. <laughs> well, after the Bachman books came out, King started publishing more under his name and they were selling well. So it turned out that that theory of the publishing industry was totally wrong. Right. Yeah. 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 So one of the other things that we asked about, uh, because the Saturday Night Ghost Club deals so much with it, is urban legends, uh, conspiracy theories and things like that. So we asked, you know, have you ever believed in urban legends, conspiracy theories, etc., only to find out the truth later? How about you guys? There are some that I, I still believe in. I think I, I feel like I've talked about this before. Spontaneous combustion. Um, <laughs> like I remember reading it like back when I was 12 or something in one of those amazingly weird books, you know, whatever, whatever they were called, you know, um, like horrifying experiences or whatever they were called anyway. And reading about, yeah, people just lying in bed or sitting in a rocking chair and all of a sudden bursting into flames and all they would find is the ash seriously. And sometimes even now I'll feel like a tingling on my toes or something when I'm like in bed and I'll lift it up to make sure that they're not on fire. Because I just worry about spontaneous combustion. I am, I guess, I don't need to say this, I am fairly gullible. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that I, I, I guess I didn't realize was not true, and I went on Snoops uh, or Snopes. Dot com, Snopes. which is like Snopes, such a yeah. great website um, that I try I to go found to. It, I hope you found it through the Media Literacy Guide uh, on the Winnipeg Public oh, Library yeah. page because there's a link to it there if I carry yeah, on. Yes, of course. Um, is that if you pee in a public pool, it won't turn red. There's no such dye because I always had that in my head. I was on swim team for years and years and years. And I thought, oh, my God, you can never pee in a pool because it'll they probably added this dye and it'll turn red. And I still as an adult have thought that. So no such dye exists. Pee away. <laughs> when, when I was a kid, I was totally into all of the, you know, like Sasquatch, Loch Ness Monster, mm -hmm. Bermuda Triangles, uh, telepathy, telekinesis. I just totally bought into it all and I would read books on it all the time. So one day I was at Henderson Library and I found a book on the shelf called The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved by Larry Cush, uh, which is oh. unfortunately no longer in the collection. And... <laughs> But the thing is, with that title, I had to read it, yes. right? The author was a reference librarian at a university who said that, you know, he would get these questions from students about the Bermuda Triangle all the time, and he didn't know how to answer them because they didn't have any good sources. So he decided to research it. And being a librarian, he went after original source documents about all of the famous cases that were always in these uh, stories. And something interesting happened. Whenever we would find original newspaper accounts, insurance documents, accident reports, things like that, he would find that the legend never matched up to the contemporary accounts of the incidents that they were talking about. Uh, every time it turned out they weren't considered mysterious at the time, there were perfectly logical explanations for all of them. Most of the Bermuda Triangle incidents, or many of them, did not occur in the Bermuda Triangle at all. They were well far away from it. 
And so what he eventually concluded was that the mystery was manufactured by writers who, you know, took elements of a real life story and then just dressed it up. And then later writers just added to it continuously. And I'll tell you, as a kid reading that book, that really changed my worldview because I suddenly realized sometimes stories people tell you just they're not accurate. <laughs> but I, I used to love that stuff. I mean, I have to say that my brother-in-law, Jeff Dittman, a listener to this show, and I may have already mentioned this before, but he and Chris Rutkowski have written the Canadian UFO report and have for years compiled this report about UFO sightings or unexplained sightings. And they have spreadsheets galore, but then they've written books as well. And so there's this one book and they talk about sort of the most interesting cases like at Falcon Lake here in Manitoba and these unexplained instances where there's not always a reasonable explanation. So hmm. I have to put a little little plug and you can find that in, in your local Winnipeg Public Library. <laughs> hmm. I I think as a as a kid I probably would have thought as an adult, I would have to deal with quicksand a lot more than I do as an adult <laughs> and, uh, and secret codes, breaking oh. secret codes and, and creating secret codes. I haven't had as much experience with those as, as maybe I was led to believe as a child. Uh, but, but one, one theory that persists that captures my imagination to this day is the whole JFK, uh, assassination conspiracy, which, mm. uh, kind of, was sparked for me when the 1991 film JFK by Oliver Stone came out starring Kevin Costner, which I saw in the theater an embarrassingly three times. And it's like a three hour movie. So that's like nine hours of big screen paranoia that I just ate up. Like I was in high school and it, it just, the, first of all, the movie itself is extremely well done just from a technical standpoint. But then the ideas it raises in there led me on a rabbit hole. That doesn't sound like me at all, does it? Uh, for years, reading and and uh, so much so that I had a conversation with my friend's dad who actually visited the book depository in Dallas. And I interviewed him about what he thought. And he was also, I guess in a way, was like my Uncle Cal in some ways. Uh, he said, no, he said, there's no way one man could have done it. And I was mm. like, I know, I know. So... That's uh, Mr. Ayub. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. You know, one of the scenes in the book, I think it's actually the first scene uh, or the first um, adventure that the Saturday Night Ghost Club goes on, oh, aside from the visit to the, uh, the morgue, was to the Screaming Tunnel. Mm -hmm. So what happened there? That was a ghost. That that was a ghost. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I found about the the book is that I was expecting it to take more of a supernatural turn. Yeah. But it never actually did, right? I mean, Jake saw something in the tunnel, something indistinct in a dark tunnel with weird lighting, and passed out. Yeah. And so, and you know, I think Billy said he also saw something. Yeah. But again, you're in a dark tunnel with weird lighting <laughs> after hearing a ghost story from your uncle, and and there's weird noises around you. And so they never describe what he actually saw. Yeah. But the experience was the thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like if you go into a haunted house and you've had all this build up to it, you will see things and you will perceive them based on that experience. But he never actually says there's a ghost or anything like that. It's just these are the things that happened and this was his reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. 
which I thought was really well done. Yeah, because all of the other sort of adventures, you know, it, it, it was all sort of explained, you know, we, we could understand what was happening. But um, with this, I would have totally have been right along there with them seeing a ghost. I just know it. I just know it. It was a really well-written scene. It, yeah, it really, really was. Yeah, yeah. So I guess before we move on with our conclusion of the podcast, uh, any final comments about the book, the story, the characters? I will say I really enjoyed the character of Lex. Oh, uh, yes. the, 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 the solid friend who stood by and tried his best to support Cal, but also the fact that he ran the beta store and he was like, <laughs> constantly, going, Oh, why would anyone get a VHS when beta is so much more technologically superior and stuff like that? And what was his new, it, he, he got uh, into he, a new he business? He opened a Polaroid store, <laughs> uh, camera shop. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> the, there's actually a term for that type of person. Uh, I read an article years ago about uh, people that marketing companies call harbingers of failure. And these, these are people who adopt new technologies and they always manage to pick the ones that fail. So like Lex with, uh, beta and then Polaroid. And, you know, there's the people who got, uh, HD DVD and, uh, like, yeah, laser discs. <laughs> yeah. All the people who bought the Newton back when Apple brought that out, you know, and some people just continuously picked the wrong thing for whatever reason. And, uh, Lex was that guy. He was a nice guy for the most part, you know, but uh, I, I'm, I just I'm, I'm glad character. that things worked out with him, his uh, girlfriend and the cat, too. Yes. Nice. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, man, getting those kids to steal a cat for you. What is it? <laughs> well, you know, I know we've, we've kind of danced around the central mystery in this book, which I'm happy with dancing around, you know, in, in respect to Uncle Cal. But uh, what do you guys think about the whole idea of... Like his sister and brother-in-law and best mm-hmm. friend, and even the funeral director, kind of enabling the fantasy to continue without going into detail. Like it seemed kind of irresponsible and ultimately unhealthy. But what they weren't enabling a fantasy, were they? I mean, they were keeping a secret from him, like information about his past. Right. Well, I think part of what that illustrates is uh, like, there wasn't any way that they knew how to treat him uh, mm. medically mm-hmm. uh, and mental health issues and trauma issues are mm-hmm. unfortunately very undertreated in society and very disrespected, uh, misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's hard to get treatment for mental health conditions at the best of times. So I think that that was a big part of that. It's like they didn't have any way of helping him recover his memory. And there was the question, too, like, are you being kind to him Mm -hmm. by bringing up that he has gone through this terrible trauma that he isn't recognizing? I don't know. There was a lot of ambiguity there. Yeah, Yeah, because I was I sort of thought the same thing at first. Trevor, and but now when I'm sort of like reflecting back on it and, and after what you've just said, Dennis, that also, too, you know, we're nostalgic with this story. And I mean, if we were to think about this present day and how we deal with mental health issues is a lot different and has progressed, it's still not perfect. There's still a lot of stigma. But back in the day, you're right, Dennis. I mean, we we weren't treating it respectfully. Or, and the fact is, Uncle Cal had family who loved him and friends who loved him. And so he was, he was being cared for. And mm-hmm. so there was at least that. And yeah, when, even if they didn't really know what to do, if he was then had some sort of medical intervention, 
it might have made things worse for him. Like, it's hard to know. That's that's the whole sort of the nostalgia, the danger of nostalgia, right? That back then, yeah. things weren't good in a lot of ways. <laughs> I do like the fact that he was surrounded by people who did look out for him. Yes. That was, uh, Loved him in deeply. the end, you... In the end, when you realize how much love all the people around him were showing him by watching out for him and, and checking in on him when they needed to, but also letting him have an independent life mm -hmm. and having that interaction with his nephew. And, you know, in the end, it was a very heartwarming story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I did like at the end, too, when then Jake uh, introduces his own son uh, mm -hmm. to Cal and, and, then yeah. the, and then the next generation. And that, yeah, I left you with a very warm uh, I just felt bad for Uncle Cal, uh, but I totally get what the two of you are saying about uh, his family and friends and the, that circle, you know, loving him and looking out for him the best they could. And uh, yeah, I, I, I feel good with that explanation, guys. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Glad to help. It was a good story. It really was. Speaking of stories and stories we like, we're on to our next segment, which we call Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? Who would like to recommend something first? I will. Um, earlier when Trevor was talking about the Saturday Night Ghost Club and, and about the relationship that uh, Jake had with the friendships and the coming of age, and you, you said, oh, I was wondering, you know, you were worried about it was going to be building up to, you know, somebody dying or the cancer thing. And for me, I thought you were going to say it was building up to be someone's going to have sex. So that, <laughs> so that brings me to my book recommendation. <laughs> um, Forever by Judy Bloom. And uh, it's funny because I chose this book and then I was reading the acknowledgments in the back of Saturday Night Ghost Club and Craig Davidson thanks Judy Bloom along with Stephen King as uh, major influences um, that he read a lot while he was um, this age. So Forever by Judy Bloom had a big impact on me. I totally remember grade six sitting in the class and the book being passed around under the tables open to the pages about Ralph. And I mean, the book is a little bit about Ralph, but it's mainly about Catherine and Michael and they're in high school, seniors in high school. They're attracted to each other. They love each other. And once they realize that they are in love with each other, they want to and, 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 they, and they think our love is forever. So they want to make love and have sex. And Michael calls his penis Ralph, um, which is just a really, you know, titillating uh, part of the story for uh, grade six Kirsten. But like the book really describes, you know, having consensual sex and responsible sex. There's a visit to the Planned Parenthood. And but I mean, of course, it's also realistic that, you know, such a love is not actually forever. This is in Romeo and Juliet. Uh, you're you're in high school. And um, so they do break up. This was actually published in 1975. And it was very controversial because of its depiction of this type of relationship. It was banned in a lot of schools, and I think it still is often challenged in many school systems. So that is Forever by Judy Bloom, my uh, book recommendation this month. Mm -hmm. I, th I think the only Ralph in my uh, childhood reading was Ralph S. Mouse, the uh, the character <laughs> from the, the Mouse and the Motorcycle by uh, Beverly Cleary. So, is that what you I mean, were I reading busy, in grade I was, six? <laughs> I, was, I was reading G.I. Joe comics and playing with Transformers. I, I, wasn't, uh, I didn't know what was going on. I also I kind of doubled down on the nostalgia factor for my book pick, if I may go next. And I am recommending The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid 
by mm-hmm. Bill Bryson. Now, it's about a nostalgic time that none of us can relate to firsthand. It's more uh, a time maybe of our parents' generation, because it was growing up in the 1950s in Des Moines, Iowa, and anyone that's read Bill Bryson knows that he is extremely funny, extremely uh, perceptive. Uh, he's mostly known for his travel writing. And in fact, it was Bill Bryson's travel books that got me hooked on the whole genre of travel writing back in the day when he wrote uh, Lost in America and uh, when he moved to England and did the books around England and then he did one in Australia. But this book is unapologetically a look at his family life growing up with his eccentric parents and... Uh, I, I just started reading it again the other day uh, to see if I wanted to make it my book recommendation. And even though I only can relate to the 1950s through things like Back to the Future, um, <laughs> his style of writing is so delightful that I think myself, who, you know, born in the 70s, came of age in the 80s, uh, love it. And I think it would be a recommended read for anyone that wants to just feel good about, uh, I don't know, this is the good side of nostalgia, I think. So. <laughs> So I'm going to make uh, what's probably a really obvious recommendation, uh, and that is The Body by Stephen mm-hmm. King, which is a novella collected <laughs> in different seasons. This was the basis of the movie Stand By Me. So you may have already seen the movie. It was a big one. Uh, it's 1960 in the fictional town of Castle Rock, Maine. Ray Brower, a boy from a nearby town, has disappeared, and 12-year-old Jordi Lachance and his three friends set out on a quest to find his body along the railroad tracks. During the course of their journey, Gordy, Chris Chambers, Teddy Duchamp, and Vern Tessio come to terms with death and the harsh truths of growing up in a small factory town that doesn't offer much in the way of a future. A timeless exploration of the loneliness and isolation of young adulthood, Stephen King's The Body is an iconic, unforgettable coming-of-age story. <laughs> and definitely worth a read. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warning, Stephen King often puts gross things into his horror books, so (laughs) (laughs) just so you know. (laughs) And that that collection of four stories, each one representing a season, that's why it's called Different Seasons. I believe the body represents summer. Uh, The spring story in there, Hope Springs Eternal, was is the story... um, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which was made into the movie The Shawshank Redemption as well. So if you consider that collection, two, I think all four stories have been made into movies, but if you consider those, two of those stories have made into such iconic, critically acclaimed films. It's it's yeah. great. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, Dennis, that's a great pick. That's a great pick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for your approval. <laughs> Hi, my name is Madeline, and I work in information services at the Millennium Library. I recently read the book Mysterious Skin by Scott Heim, and I enjoyed the nuanced LGBTQ characters and how it examined the different effects similar traumatic effects can have on people. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. And so now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, in which we investigate the words and phrases that have been haunting us recently. Anyone got a word? Well, 
I suppose I could go first. My word came directly out of my book pick because one of the stories that Bill Bryson tells is a recurrent theme is his, his sort of his absent-minded mother and how she kind of parents with benevolent neglect. And one time he oh. sent off to school wearing her uh, pedal pushers. Is uh, and, and so I was I heard that term pedal pusher. What is that? And so of course I did a little bit of a deep dive on pedal pushers and yeah, also they're known as capri pants. They're sort of the pants that are sort of three quarter length and they were introduced in the 1950s early 60s and they actually were revolutionary at the time because it brought freedom to many women who were sick of trying to do things like riding a bike or working in the garden uh, being forced to wear a skirt so if they could wear capris they give them tons of more mobility and freedom but there's some differences between a pedal pusher and a capri the uh, pedal pushers and just at the knee so they're like the male knickerbocker, if I'm going to use that term. Can we say, can we say that term on the podcast? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, you We can. said penis, so you could say knickerbocker. Oh, my, yeah, Ralph. <laughs> Shout out to Ralph. Um, uh, and so capris, they are more uh, calf length, so a little bit longer. They're also known as torador pants or clam diggers. Now, I don't think mm. you can say clam diggers either, so uh, we'll have to put the explicit rating on this one, Dennis. Uh, but interesting is that also... <laughs> yeah, there's a term called the plus fours. Have you heard of this? Mm-hmm. The plus fours are kind of like the male capri. I mean, gender fluidity is is the name of the game these days. So I think a, a man could wear a, a capri and a woman could wear a plus four. I'm not going to say otherwise. But a plus four means that they're four inches longer below the knee than you would expect mm-hmm. to see. And they're uh, were often made popular by golfers and dandies back in the day. Oh. You could also um, have a plus two, which is uh, only two inches below the knee, or a, or a plus six. They were not nearly as popular as the uh, plus fours. But I just want to read a little quotation because er- everything old is new again. And uh, there was quite a bit of criticism about plus fours when they came out. They were referred to an extravagant, careless style that fit right in with the looser fashions and lifestyles of the 1920s. <laughs> so, I mean, like, why would they uh, object to, like, uh, a, a piece, an article of clothing that would show less leg, right? If everyone's used to the knickerbocker at the knee... And then someone comes along with a plus four. And well, here's an interesting side fact, too, because, again, everything old is new again. There's Mm -hmm. troubles with the monarchy. The uh, plus four was introduced to America in 1924 by the Prince of Wales, who later on became King Edward VII, who abdicated in 1936. Mm. So Harry, Mm. Meghan... King Edward the Seventh, Eighth. I don't know. <laughs> it's all it's all relevant again, you guys. It uh, it is. Aw, nostalgia. <laughs> I think I wore some plus fours last night. No, plus sixes, maybe, maybe plus five. Well, plus five. I think, to, yeah. I think you need to report back with the measurement. Loose plus five. Loose. Loose. Yeah. That's a, audacious. <laughs> So speaking of last night, um, wait, 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 Dennis hasn't gone. What um, is that? Well, the I was going to go last. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, last because he wraps it up in this like beautiful like. Uh, of you course, know, he does. He does. Sorry, yeah. Carry on. I'm sorry, Kirsten. <laughs> I, just, I was affronted because I thought Dennis was ready to go, and now we're we're going to hear a story about your no. plus fives, which is not a real thing. I'm going to say okay. right here. This is this is actually a serious nerd word. Um, okay, so my nerd word is Kalmayork which is inuktitut for it is bright, it is lit. And so last mm. night, I was super lucky to be able to wear my plus fives to, um, <laughs> to 
uh, Cal Mallorca, uh, which is part of the Winnipeg Art Gallery and is the largest collection of Inuit art in the world. And so it just opened up. Cal Mallorca, a place where culture, art, and language lives in the light. And language keepers from all over the North and also Indigenous nations in, in Manitoba came up with the name. I've been practicing it, Kamayork, so that it does roll off my tongue, so I'm not sort of stumbling over it. And I've been trying to practice that with a lot of the um, Indigenous and the traditional names of many of our spaces and places. So I read this really wonderful article uh, in the Free Press last week uh, by uh, Jen Zarati, and she was talking about, it was actually called What's in a Name? everything. So talking about Kamayork and how the language keepers came up with the name and how it does mean it is lit. So from the standpoint of the language keepers who all met last summer, I think, uh, virtually to talk about uh, what would be the best name, the sort of commonality was that there, the appreciation of just all the light that comes into this space, all the natural light that comes into this space, because of course, uh, many Inuit communities are experienced 24 hours of darkness um, in the winter. And so when spring and summer and the sun finally comes back, you want to celebrate, you're more energized, there's healthier, happier. So obviously light is very important. And in the article, Julia Lefrenier, a Métis woman and head of the Indigenous Initiatives um, at the WAG, said, Though our cultures have been attempted to be extinguished and we've been colonized, there's always a light of hope in our culture, and that's brought forward in the Indigenous languages. The language taking up space in a colonial institution is really significant, and not just space, but significant space. So that's... Kalmayork, which means it is bright, it is lit, and it is a magnificent gallery. And I encourage everyone who is lucky enough to come to Winnipeg to visit it. I'm assuming we have many folks from beyond Winnipeg who listen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kalmayork. Nice. So my word for this month is realization. Uh, Cambridge Dictionary defines realization as the fact or moment of starting to understand a situation. It's that perceptual shift when you go from not really getting it to, oh, I see. I love moments of realization. They light up my brain in a very pleasing way, and I feel a little more in tune with the world around me. Unfortunately for me, most of my realizations are about small and inconsequential things rather than the grand insights that I would love to have. Just recently, for instance, I've become enamored with grapes. (laughs) My parents used to get them periodically when I was younger, but when I moved out on my own, I almost never bought them until recently. So a couple of months ago, I tried some red table grapes and I fell in love with them and I've been getting them regularly ever since. And as often happens when I have a new enthusiasm, I was reading an article about grapes on Wikipedia (laughs) and it mentioned that grapes were classified as berries. For whatever reason, I'd never considered grapes to be anything other than grapes. In my mind, they're their own category of fruit. If my wife had asked me to pick up some berries from the grocery store, I would have considered blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, Saskatoons, but certainly not grapes. <laughs> when I read that grapes are berries, I had this moment of disorientation where my entire worldview, as it relates to grapes and berries at least, fluctuated. And when I really thought about it, it's of course obvious that grapes are berries, but for whatever reason, I'd just never given it any real thought. 
So that's the type of realization I tend to experience, not grand insights into the nature of matter or existence or insights into people's motivations or anything deep, but the discovery of obvious facts that I just haven't thought about before. Despite the mundane nature of the grapes are berries discovery, though, it still gave me that delightful mental pleasure that comes with new discoveries and new realizations. Beautiful. Beautiful. I, I don't think I would have ever thought of them as berries either. <laughs> no, if someone says, uh, here's a plate of mixed berries and there's grapes in there, you're like, what did you put grapes in the berries? Right? Yeah. Like, you think of blueberry pie, you know, grape pie. Grape I know there's raisin pie, but no, you wouldn't. Yeah. yeah it's, oh, man. My mind is it's, it's different. Yeah, that's, that's how I've been feeling for the last four months. It's like I keep thinking about it and it's just grapes. Not sour grapes, mind you. They're very mm. delicious. Mm. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. Aside from that one time we went with poetry, we usually read novels for this podcast book club. But there's more to narrative fiction than just novels and novellas. For March, we've decided to dive into some short stories. We'll be reading 10th of December by George Saunders. He has been described as a blazingly original writer and as an undisputed master of the short story, so let's see what the hubbub is about. Also, we're planning on having a new voice join us for that discussion, so be sure to have a listen on the first Friday next month. If you want to tell us what you think we should read next, connect with us on social media or through email. You can find all of our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes and discussion questions there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time to Read. What? what? That was just a little bit of public <laughs> enemy. I forgot about that. nostalgia. <laughs> oh. Was not expecting public enemy. No, from no. <laughs> hey, man, St. James. Still, I don't. I still don't get that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'll tell you Same. what about that album, "Fear of a Black Planet." Is I never owned it, but <laughs> it, was, it was such a part of my, uh, like, say, high school years. Is that later on, much later on, I realized the library had a copy of it, so I brought it home. And I, you know, was playing it in the car and I knew every word of every song, you know, I never owned it. Like it was just, it was somehow in the back of my brain, it, the, the entire album was there and That's it was amazing. fantastic. Yeah, it was great. <laughs>